to the Popey Podcast You Didn't Know You Needed, where we talk history through Pope-colored glasses and some of the craziest, most popular stories you've never heard of. It's a real joy for us to welcome you all here. I would like to invite each of you to listen. Do not be afraid. P.A. Jesu Domine, Dona e this is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to the Popular History Podcast. History through Pope Colored Glasses. My name is Greg, and this is episode 8.16, The Whole World Being at Peace. All of these Ot episodes are designed to help us build our Pope Colored Glasses so we can look at history together. It's kind of like picking up your 3D glasses on your way into one of those 3D movies, if you've ever done that, except it's a process that's taking years, if you've been with me from the start, or at least it's going to take hours if you binge podcasts at three times speed like I tend to. At present, we're going through the Second Testament through the Mysteries of the Rosary. At present, we're going through the Second Testament via the Mysteries of the Rosary. This being our third episode, the focus is on the third joyful mystery, the Nativity, or in layman's terms, the birth of Jesus. And just as a reminder, I said, and will attempt to continue saying, Second and First Testament, as a small way of pushing back against resurgent anti-Semitism. Blame Ye, though he's hardly alone. Anyways, on to happier things. Let's talk about Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. While I generally suppose my listeners aren't familiar with Catholicism in these world-building episodes, so no one feels left out, I don't want this one to be like five hours of explaining who Rudolph and Frosty are, so I'm going to take it as a given that you're familiar with what goes on in December in the Western world, generally speaking. If you aren't, the last thing I'm ever going to do is leave you with a dismissive, you know, Google is your friend, because that would make me the worst librarian in the world. So I'll say, if you want another history pod... Stuff You Missed in History Class, with uh, Tracy and Holly, has several solid holiday episodes in their back catalog. And of course, you're always welcome to email me with questions at popularhistory at gmail.com. Email plug? Check. Of course, much of the holiday stuff you see around does have Christian roots, and those are going to be fair game here. Santa himself can be traced back to St. Nicholas, a 4th century bishop of Mira, Turkey. Just a quick last minute note, it should pretty obviously be pronounced Myra. I got that one wrong. A lot in this episode. Probably the most Santa thing the actual Santa did was secretly chucking money through the windows of a house at night three times to save three daughters from prostitution by providing them with dowries. No word on whether the dad was tempted to make up extra daughters. He probably knew better than to try to commit saint fraud, especially if this took place after probably the least Santa thing attributed to actual Santa, namely punching the heretic Arius in the face at the Council of Nicaea. Now, I hate to say it, but I want you to have the best, most facty facts I can offer. So, I need to say it. Punchy old St. Nicholas probably didn't happen. I'm not just saying that because I'm Facebook friends with the guy cited as a source on the topic on Nicholas of Myra's Wikipedia entry, although I am, and the relevant article will be cited in the show notes. Shout out Deacon Stephen Gray Danis. You see, there's a thousand years between the Council and the first preserved report of Nicholas striking anyone there, 
and even then the strikey wasn't Arius himself, but simply a certain Arian. Which, if it had been Arius himself punched, that source probably would have been, you know, more specific. There's also the fact that it's originally listed as a slap, rather than a full-on punch, but a potato-potato. Then, following the natural progression of rumors getting spicier as they go on down the line, a later author put Arius in the role of the slappy, and in fact the slap becomes a punch. And by Victorian times, it's even listed as he, uh, quote, boxed his ears soundly, end quote. There is a certain detail in these assault stories that I really think does have the air of truth to it, uh, namely that this is not presented as a then-everyone-clapped moment. Instead, Santa is condemned for his act and stripped of his Episcopal garb. Of course, that condemnation then turns out to be a setup for a veritable vindication of violence by a venerable virgin when Our Lady shows up and personally reinstates St. Nicholas. So that may be not actually much of a counter to the skeptics given how they tend to frown on miracles and apparitions generally. There's also the question of whether St. Nicholas was actually at the council. There are some prominent doubters, based on nothing contemporary calling out his specific presence. But absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, and our records for the council in question are pretty lacking in general. By the way, for those of you keeping score, this would be the first Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, and yes, we will be getting into what a council is later, specifically in episode 0.24, Jesus Wept. Maybe Jesus will have a little less cause for weeping in a few years, given the rumors I've seen about the 1700th anniversary gathering at Nicaea planned for 2025. It's not very often you see 1700th anniversary celebrations, but uh, that's church history for you. Anyway, given that it's not really disputed that St. Nicholas was the Bishop of Mira during the time of the Council, and Mira wasn't terribly far from Nicaea, they're both in modern Turkey, and also with the fact that the idea was to bring all the bishops of the world together, I'm inclined to say he was there, even if I don't think he punched Arius, as much as the internet wishes he had. But hey, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. We're doing history through Pope-colored glasses here, so if there's a papal pronouncement affirming that Santa punched Arius, as long as I've got a source on it, it will be the official stance of the show. Feel free to write Pope Francis and ask him what he thinks, or tweet him at Pontifex, assuming Twitter is still a thing by the time you hear this. Alright, I know I just did my best to spoil some Santa trivia for you, but for what it's worth, I've got some spicy new Santa trivia for you. If you've ever heard someone complain about Christmas creeping earlier in the year, well, as near as I can tell, and yes, that phrase is there to cover my butt if necessary, as I haven't researched this exhaustively, but as near as I can tell, St. Nicholas's December 6th feast day was an early part of Christmas, taking over pretty much all of December, as the saint came to be associated with Christmas, especially with the gift theme tying things together given the gifts from the Magi who visited the Christ child. More on that in a bit, we've got a fair amount of church calendaring to cover. Now, we probably should start our church calendaring with explaining what a church calendar even is. For starters, the more proper name is a liturgical calendar. But if you don't know what I mean by liturgical, you can sub in the word church, and 99% of the time, you'll be fine. Speaking of starters, Happy New Year, kind of. 
more specifically, Happy Liturgical New Year, because, though I didn't trouble you with it at the time, with the last episode coming out on the Feast of Christ the King, it was also coming out on the last Sunday of the liturgical year, since that's how the Holy Day is set in current practice in the Roman Rite. And yes, I did say Holy Day, not Holiday. As you might have guessed, those uh, words are related, but when it comes to liturgical calendars and feast days, Holy Day is the phrase you're going to want, rather than the more secular, that is, a worldly, holiday terminology. Okay, so if Christ the King is tied to the end of the year, then what's the beginning? If you guessed, whatever happens the day after the Feast of Christ the King? Uh, good guess, but maybe not good enough, because you've actually activated my trap card. Liturgically, days that aren't Sunday matter very, very little. So it's not really so much about the day after, because the church doesn't really care about those Mondays. It's about the following Sunday, the next week, the first Sunday of Advent. Now, why Sundays? Well, we'll get there eventually. Not this episode, though. Have some patience. Now, as the term first implies, there's more than one Sunday in Advent. There are four. And even though Sundays are the main show, sure, why not, the other days of the week during this liturgical season also get labeled as part of Advent, too. For example, the first Monday of Advent is the day after that first Sunday of Advent kicks off the new liturgical year. If this is getting a bit weird for you, well, fair enough, it is a bit weird. Let's get on to something we can hold on to, a date that's always the same in both the secular calendar and the liturgical calendar. Good, trusty December 25th, a.k.a. Christmas, a.k.a. the Solemnity of the Nativity of Our Lord. You see, Advent means coming towards, and Christmas is what it's, well, coming towards. Any given year, you can find December 25th on the calendar, then you can mark down the Sunday before that as the fourth Sunday of Advent, and the one before that as the third Sunday of Advent, etc. The first Sunday of Advent will therefore always fall on or between November 27th and December 3rd, depending on which day of the week Christmas is. By extension, Christ the King will always land on or between November 20th and November 26th, whichever of those dates happen to be a Sunday. And I hate to break it to you, but this isn't even the most convoluted part of the liturgical calendar. Plus, you may or may not have clocked my quick uh, current practice in the Roman Rite qualification earlier. There are several cans of worms I'm glossing over here, including that I can already hear the sounds of several angry emails being typed out about how I dare to act like the extraordinary form isn't current practice in the Roman Rite. Look, We'll cover the variety of rites, plus ordinary form versus extraordinary form, and so on, in a future episode. Specifically, Ot.31, if you must know, with a bit of previewing in Ot.24. For now, well, we are building Pope Color glasses, and unfortunately Rome's view has long been rather Latin and uh, Rome-centric. And all that, believe it or not, is without even considering a look outside the Catholic Church, where, of course, traditions vary by denomination and local custom and simple family traditions. The angel in our tree, for example, is typically a gingerbread man oven mitt, and we usually put it up around my birthday for what it's worth. There are more holiday and holy day traditions than we'd ever be able to discuss in one sitting, 
So let's just keep going with our two focused. That's probably not the right term given my meandering, but I'm going to keep it. Let's keep going with our two focused tour of the liturgical calendar and ask what comes after Christmas Day? Good King Whitsenslas looked out on the Feast of Stephen. Okay, we're going to focus on the Feast of Stephen part here, even though a Good King Wenceslas is a saint. Anyways, yes, sir, the Feast of Stephen typically falls on December 26th. I say typically because about a seventh of the time, including I see last year as I take a glance at the old calendar we haven't changed in a full year, at least it's current again, about a seventh of the time, the Feast of Stephen falls on a Sunday. And when it comes to liturgical calendars, remember, the Sundays are more important than pretty much anything else. At least the month's right again. About a seventh of the time, the Feast of Stephen falls on a Sunday. And when it comes to liturgical calendars, remember, Sundays are more important than pretty much anything else. Christmas is a rare example of a feast with enough cred that it doesn't get bumped by Sundays. Anyways, if December 26th happens to be a Sunday, the Feast of Stephen gets pushed back a day to Monday, the 27th, which is what happened last year. Now, what's up with that Sunday? Well, we're out of the Sundays of Advent. There are always exactly four of those. But we aren't out of Sundays that have a special meaning in relation to Christmas time, because the Sunday after Christmas is usually, the Feast of the Holy Family. Unless January 1st is a Sunday, because that's right, people, we've got two of those top-tier solemnities that can even mess with our Sunday plans just a week away from each other. January 1st, Sunday or no, is the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God. So you're just going to have to move the Feast of the Holy Family to Friday, December 30th, in the years where January 1st is a Sunday. Now, why is the Solemnity of Mary, Mother of God, so important? Well, first off, we had a whole ecumenical council about it. Ephesus in 431. And I'm going to again point you to the future episode 0.24 for more on all the ecumenical councils. Man, that episode is going to be a banger, and also probably very long. Don't worry, there's a madness to my method. Anyways, the particular timing of Mary, Mother of God, is significant as well because it's also rolled in with the circumcision of the Lord, which the Gospel of Luke records as having taken place on the eighth day of baby Jesus' life. Also helping to crowd this stretch of the liturgical calendar are two smaller feasts, December 27th being the Feast of St. John, or perhaps, if you're an insufferable modern, it should commemorate the whole Joanine community. Either way, it makes sense to have that feast close to Jesus, since according to John, John was the disciple closest to Jesus. I'd say we might be able to take that with a grain of salt, but who am I to question St. John? It probably helps that according to tradition, by the time he was writing his account, no one else was around who could really contradict him. Disciple whom Jesus loved? Sure. Entrusted with Our Lady? Of course. Won that foot race? You bet. I shouldn't knock him so much, but the truth is I'm stalling for a minute because the next feast on the 28th is a lot more sobering. It's the Feast of the Holy Innocents. I am going to describe that once we finish winding our way back through the church calendars and through the commemorative traditions, all the way back to the events themselves. We're going to go back in time. By the way, 
my inspiration for the somewhat reverse structuring of this part of the episode, starting with the uh, modern and ending up with the events that started things, is definitely the History of Asia podcast by Christoph Ertz, where he does the same, starting his overview of each country at the present and making his way back to great effect. I'll link that one in the show notes, too. Now, December 29th has two smaller feasts, though there's a good chance you'll recognize them both. Hopefully you at least know King David, since we covered him a fair amount in previous episodes. And yes, he is listed as a saint with his own specific feast day in the church's calendar. There aren't a ton of First Testament figures given this treatment for a number of reasons, but yes, King David's feast day is December 29th and that is most likely picked as one close to the nativity to emphasize Jesus' familial link to the dynasty. I honestly don't have more than a hunch to justify that statement, but it's a guess I'm comfortable with. The 29th is also the Feast of St. Thomas Becket, and actually it is not at all unusual for a date to have multiple saints. Uh, Typically, you pick the one you like more and roll with that one for liturgical purposes. Suffice it to say, there are a lot more than 365, or rather, I guess, 366 saints. And yes, there are some whose feast day falls on February 29th, those poor, blessed souls. St. Thomas's feast, as is the case with so many saints, is the anniversary of his death, which is not coincidental given that it was on Christmas Day that King Henry II of England was allegedly heard saying, quote, Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? End quote. A comment which prompted four knights to travel back across the English Channel, the king was in France at the time, and murder St. Thomas, who was then the Archbishop of Canterbury. Specifically, they murdered him during Mass. Murder in the cathedral. And yes, that's where the Eliot play comes from. Anyways, those are actually fairly minor feasts, and December 29th is basically an ordinary day liturgically, apart from it being part of the Christmas season. You see, Christmas Day is the beginning, not the end, liturgically. In the secular world, decorations disappear pretty quickly after the 25th, having been up all through Advent. But for the Church, Advent is a time, not of celebration, but of preparation. Then, there's plenty of Christmas, with December 25th through January 1st being the octave of Christmas. Octave basically meaning an eight-day stretch, because, well you do the math. There's also a venerable tradition of the 12 days of Christmas, famous from that song with a lot of birds, with the 12 days of Christmas being December 26th, not 25th, because why not wriggle out an extra day, through January 6th, with the 6th being Epiphany, aka the celebration of the coming of the three wise men, also known as the Magi, accounted in Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 dig into that more here soon, I promise, but there's actually more Christmas yet, because I personally like to stretch Christmas out as far as possible, beyond even Twelfth Night, and yes, that's the source for the name of the Shakespeare play. I'm rocking the theater stuff right now, apparently. But anyways, the first Sunday after Epiphany is the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord in the modern Roman Rite, which marks the end of the official Christmas season in Roman Catholicism. But for my part, for personal reasons, including the aforementioned desire to get as much Christmas as possible, I like to keep the tree up until February 2nd when possible, that being Candlemas Day, or the Feast of the Presentation of the Lord, B. 
being an older traditional end date for the Christmas season, tied to 40 days from birth being the time for the ritual presentation of the child, mandated in Exodus 13 and, in Jesus' case, described in Luke 2. We'll actually be covering that more in our next episode, since it's the topic of the next mystery of the Rosary. For now, let's put the liturgical calendar down and pick up another Christmas tradition or two. You know, tis the season. Actually, you know what? Let's go ahead and keep that calendar handy, because if there's going to be a theme to this episode, it's going to be Happy Birthday, Jesus! I hope you like calendars. But let's bring out a time machine, too, so we can start making our way back to the first Noel, as promised. We can take a running start, because I'm not going to bother with the last hundred years or so, from the Grinch, watch the Boris Karloff version, to the monstrosity known as Elf on a Shelf. But we can't skip by the 19th century, since it had a huge impact, especially on Christmas. Santa got fat and started living on the North Pole thanks to 19th century illustrator Thomas Nast, after having been rescued from relative obscurity by historian John Pintard and his buddy Washington Irving, not to mention Clement Clark Moore of Twas the Night Before Christmas fame. All of these are older than Coca-Cola, though that brand was indeed fond of using Father Christmas in their ad campaigns, they didn't actually bring much to the myth-making table. Now, of course, you can't get through the 19th century without appearances from Victoria and Albert, so please note that, yes, indeed, they helped popularize the Christmas tree in the English-speaking world, as, though they weren't the first, they displayed theirs prominently in a popular 1848 engraving. And Victorian Christmas cards, by the way, are fantastic. Anyways, talking Christmas trees does take us further back and into modern Germany, but before we go back into the origins of Christmas trees, we actually have another indoor evergreen in use in December with roots in Germany. Advent wreaths. Since Advent wreaths are a bit more obscure than Christmas trees, Please know modern Advent wreaths are reasonably settled as a circle of pine boughs, or some reasonable facsimile of that, with four candles, three purple and one pink, mounted at even intervals in the circle. They're created or pulled out from storage in time for the first Sunday of Advent, when the first candle, that is the one across on the pink one, is lit during whatever designated prayer or scripture reading time there might be. There certainly are kits and guides with prayers, but there's not exactly a set tradition of what exactly to do when the candle is lit, apart from the general idea of some form of pious reflection or prayer. A lot of folks are more particular with just, you know, making sure that after you light that first one across on the pink candle, you light one of the purple ones next to it, because the pink candle is for the third Sunday of Advent. Now, you might have been a bit surprised to hear that there's not really set prayers, given how well-known Catholics are for having set prayers for, well, pretty much everything. And, you know, honestly, I wasn't expecting to actually learn much in the research on this particular episode, but this one did surprise me. It turns out that Advent wreaths are originally a Lutheran tradition, only beginning to be adopted by American Catholics around, I don't know, the 1930s. Yes, it looks like in this case, the Protestants were the ones making up a tradition and running with it, with the Catholics happy to, uh, pick it up in due course. As for Christmas trees themselves, those almost certainly have some pagan roots to them, despite folks insisting it's somehow simply a callback to St. Boniface's anti-pagan activities. Anyways, 
medieval Catholic popular piety certainly had some say as well, as in some circles in the late Middle Ages, December 24th was treated as the Feast of Saints Adam and Eve. Yes, giving the literal fall of man slash original sin power couple a place as saints and a feast day in the calendar right next to Jesus. And this does not appear to have been so much an official thing as a popular piety thing. Um, of course, there is something suitable to having the beginning near the end, the alpha near the omega. It does have a certain ring to it, and I personally am here for the universalist overtone present in canonizing the very folks who got us into this mess. Now, what does all that have to do with Christmas trees? Well, apparently, there was a custom related to this involving setting up a paradise tree as part of a morality play, decorating it with fruit to represent the apple or the pomegranate or whatever he decided it was. It was a long time since episode 0.1. But seriously, decorate a tree indoors on December 24th? Yeah, it sounds like that's a relative of our old friend, the Christmas tree. Now, let's go deeper into the Middle Ages to check in with one of the most popular saints of all time, St. Francis of Assisi, who's really making a scene. Yes, nativity scenes trace their way all the way back to, well, I suppose with our Pope-colored glasses I should say they trace back all the way to year one in Bethlehem of Judea, but modern nativity scenes trace back to 1223, when Pope Honorius gave St. Francis permission to set up a live nativity scene with a manger, that's a long open box or trough for horses or cattle to eat from, acting as a crib, along with an ox and an ass, slash donkey if you prefer. This all went down in Greccio, modern Italy, in Lazio if you remember your regions. That's the one where Rome is if you don't remember your regions. There are some miracles connected to this story, healings and such, as well as if I read right, it sounds like maybe the doll used for baby Jesus came alive? If I'm not making that up, it does raise some questions, like, if the doll was supposed to be Jesus, and it came alive, did it come alive as Jesus? Did this doll pulling a holy Chucky count as the second coming? I mean, presumably not, seeing as to how the world has intended, but inquiring minds do want to know. Oh, and that particular tangent reminds me of another aspect of Advent we should probably talk about here. No, not the tradition of fasting. That's going to be a not point two seven. I'm talking about the end times, the second coming. Not point three two is going to have the bulk of that, but I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that an important component of Advent is a focus not only on Christ's initial coming into our world, but also his anticipated return, his second coming. As in, yeah, we've got the Messiah, but have we had second Messiah? Fundamentally, it's kind of necessary theology, given that the world didn't end when Christ showed up the first time, even though that's basically what folks were expecting would happen when the Messiah came. Believe me, early Christians were very much the end is near types. And for what it's worth, in a way, Christians still are. I can tell you this much. You're going to die. Not too long from now, even, in the grand scheme of things. I don't know how old you are, dear listener, but you've got, what, like a hundred years, max? Are you ready? Advent is all about preparation. Okay, so, time machine again. Let's go back another ways. 
The year is 525 AD, though no one is calling it that. Okay, so one guy is calling it that, but he's mainly doing it because he's tired of being reminded of the persecution of the Christians under the Emperor Diocletian when he sets out future dates for Easter at the behest of Pope John I. Counting the years since the Incarnation seems better than counting the years since the Great Persecution. And how about calling it the Year of Our Lord, or Anno Domini in Latin? Has a, has a certain ring to it, right? Well, not really as it turns out. In actuality, Dionysius Exegesus' Anno Domini system didn't exactly catch on in a hurry. It would be well over 200 years before we see it again in the venerable Bede's banger ecclesiastical history of the English people. Plus, Dionysius's idea of when the new year started, March 25th, the Feast of the Annunciation, well, that didn't end up winning out over the January 1st start date for years we're more familiar with now. Of course, that dating of New Year's as March 25th, in honor of Jesus' conception, wasn't the Dionysius original. Let's hop back in our time machine and uh, proceed. December 25th, 336. We're here at the first celebrations of the Nativity of the Lord in rapidly Christianizing Rome. It's been a few years now since the Council of Nicaea, but many of the key figures from that council are still alive and kicking, including Emperor Constantine the Great, yes, more on him later, and Santa himself. Yes, that's right, Santa was around for the first time Christmas was observed on December 25th. But what's the reason for that date? Well, I don't know how much you know about solstices and equinoxes, but let's just say there's a decent chance you know more than I do about all that. But I'm going to give this my best. As near as I can tell, the Romans considered December 25th as the winter solstice, aka the longest night of the year. If you look at modern science, the actual winter solstice alternates between uh, December 20th and 21st. Not sure whether the difference is due to an error of a few days in actual calculations, or if it's the accumulated error of a few centuries of calendar drift between when the Julian calendar was set up and when the date of Christmas was established. My money is on the latter, I think, but I'm well over my skis here, so if anyone has some more insight, by all means let me know and I can update this section. Anyways, we really should get going. We've got a couple more stops to make before we get to Jesus' actual first birthday and see what's up. Before we head, though, make a note. Despite persistent rumors to the contrary, no, the December 25th date of Christmas was not set at the Council of Nicaea. Sure, it was uh, set in the same epoch, presumably by most of the same figures, but it was not something the Council came up with. Anyways, onward and uh, backward. The year is now 274. The Emperor Aurelian dedicates a new temple to the pagan, yet monotheistic god Sol Invictus, a.k.a. the Unconquered Sun. The date? December 25th, of course. The winter solstice. What better day to remember that the sun will return than the day where it seems furthest away out of all the days in the year? Your eyebrows raise. Pagan roots, you mutter. Aurelian uh, turns and asks you what you're muttering about. You tell him the first thing that comes to mind, 
uh, soldiers will be relying on your walls for their lives over 1,500 years from now. He looks absolutely mortified. These walls are a rush job. They are the best that can be done in extremely dire circumstances. A nearby Christian notes that uh, Christ would have been born around this date, since Christians generally agree that the Incarnation happened on March 25th, the date of creation. That's also the vernal equinox, Aurelian interjects. The spring edition of Wind, Day, and Night are the same length. It could still be a pagan thing. The Christian isn't having it. God made the world, and God is rational, so it stands to reason that he would have made the universe line up well with the Annunciation. And you know what? While we're at it, the crucifixion also took place on March 25th. You can tell that that Christian is getting on Aurelian's nerves. Aurelian's next words remove all doubt. That's it. As soon as I get a chance, I'm going to fire up the persecution of the Christians again. Good luck with that, you say. What? It's not like I'm going to get murdered by my own troops before I get a chance to follow through on those plans, Aurelian responds. You decide to leave before you give him any spoilers. On your way to get to the bottom of this, you make a couple pit stops. It's 2.40. The author of De Pasca Computus confirms that the Incarnation happened on March 25th. It's 2.21, and Christian historian Sextus Julius Africanus confirms his view that the Annunciation happened on March 25th. He also looks askance at the Emperor Elagabalus, who has just introduced this cult of Sol Invictus to Rome for the first time, while also checking to see if anyone can work out some gender confirmation surgery, or can at least get them some more gigantic men to ogle. You're not scandalized because you've got modern sensibilities, but Sextus sure as heck is. Look, I know the Annunciation being on March 25th puts Christ's birth on December 25th. That might coincide with this dude's sold invictive theory, but he's definitely not our inspiration. Trust me, we want nothing to do with this dude, not least because he's a pagan. For the last time, I'm not a dude, Elagabalus retorts. You hop back in your time machine. It's two years after the birth of Christ, so 2 AD. Herod the Great has declared that all male children, two and under, in the vicinity of Bethlehem of Judea, are to be put to death. Actually, I guess this order came from Zombie Herod, considering we can confidently date the death of Herod the Great to 1 BC at the latest. Anyways, uh, the Greek liturgy gives 14,000 as the death toll for this, while there's a Syriac source that gives an even more assertive 64,000. Coptic sources go for broke with 144,000 victims. Considering we're talking about uh, just male children, two and under, in and around Bethlehem, either Bethlehem is a lot bigger than I realized, or we've got a problem with our uh, record keeping. And considering no one else has any record of this apparently monumental event outside of Matthew's Gospel, well, uh... You know, for what it's worth, the Catholic Encyclopedia gives a much humbler estimate in the dozens. Honestly, even that's an unpleasant number of murdered innocents. I mean, any way you slice it, Zombie Herod, not a great guy. Proceeding on, you watch the flight from and to Egypt and rewind, going backwards as a habit now. You might as well go ahead and catch the Annunciation everyone was talking about, and somehow... You can just make out Joseph's dream, telling him what's up and warning him of, that they need to flee to Egypt. 
The darn census will call them back, but somehow baby Jesus will survive. He has work to do, after all. And before long, you're at the arrival of the Magi. There they are. Three kings of Oriandar. Bearing gifts, they travel so far. This song is really badly scanned. Anyways, uh, gold. A gift fit for a king. Frankincense. Another kingly gift. Perhaps even the sort of incense one might offer to, say, a god. And myrrh. Used for, well, for embalming. Great. Royal embalming, but still. Mary may be sinless, but she is absolutely glaring, I think. A blanket might have been a better gift. Especially since it's traditionally, you know, winter. Which is kind of odd, given the behavior of the flocks and such, or so you've been told. But hey, uh, what do you know? Anyways, you do actually know a bit of fairly useless Wiseman trivia. Their names are Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar. Most often, when countries are attributed to them, it's Casper of India, Melchior of Persia, and Balthazar of Arabia. In fact, apparently, there's a fairly popular theory that Casper may be the uh, Gondoferes listed in the Gospel of Thomas, a tie-in which would mean St. Thomas would eventually come to him in India. Interestingly, there was a real, actually archaeologically attested king by that name in India about this time, who historically did interact with the last surviving successor state to Alexander's empire. But really, we should move on. We're so close, and the Magi theories could carry on and on. You do make a note to bless your doorway in chalk with the initials CMB in honor of the wise men. Every year. Details matter. You land in Bethlehem, December 24th, 1 AD. You overshot the birth by a nose, but uh, no matter. You know this part of the story. And it's obvious that somehow, apparently, the December 25th date was right, I guess. Or at least as good as any. Certainly it's right for the purpose of this podcast. What's it matter, after all? Christ came. That's the main takeaway. God incarnate. Emmanuel. Joseph isn't thrilled, though. Looks like there really was no room at the inn. They're going to have to stay the night in a stable. Not only that, it seems, going to have to give birth in a stable. No crib for a bed. You know where this is going. There's an angel. Shepherds. Singing and a star. That same star, it seems, that the Magi are already following, somehow knowing it means a king is to be born. News that sure did set Zombie Herod off, though he tried to hide his rage. You've seen enough. You don't want to intrude, so back into your time machine you go. There it is. The Annunciation. Mary. The Angel Gabriel. March 25th. 1 AD. As promised. Seems like Zombie Herod was a red herring, after all. But wait, you watch Mary prepare to tell her cousin Elizabeth, her already pregnant cousin. You decide to do one more trip, six months back. Yes, September 23rd. That is the day according to the liturgical calendar, your guide so far. You're very glad you had those complete Pope color glasses to put on from your trip 
all the way out to the future past episode 0.33. Things are so much clearer in hindsight. No one knows what the future holds. Except Zechariah, now that the angel just told him. But no one in 1 BC can know about 1 AD. No wonder his speech had to be taken from him. Alright, thanks for bearing with me for an even sillier and more experimental segment than usual. Let me know if you like that. I definitely designed this as basically a companion piece to the gospel stories we've covered so far, so if you're inclined, I definitely recommend you go through them again now to help everything sink in before we push forward to the next episode and beyond. I was originally planning to just long code everything for you here and now, but we're already going to be pushing an hour, so I think I'm just going to release that as a supplemental episode shortly after this goes up. Our next regular episode will come out on the next Solemnity on the Calendar, that being a little number you may have recently heard plenty about, called Christmas. We'll see you December 25th for that, though I am hoping to have an interview that I recently recorded out on the feed between now and then, a bit of a bonus content for you guys. Not to mention that supplemental with the Second Testament readings so far. Of course, before we go, I'd like to thank my extremely patient family, especially Vice Pope Mrs. Popular History, and my old man, who just today went out of his way to fix our bathroom sink for me when it proved beyond my abilities. I'd also like to thank all the volunteers who have kept the St. Vincent Food Pantry running through the years. It's been an honor to work with you. And of course, thank you, dear listeners. God bless you all.